Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. And this is a weekly history podcast where we deep dive into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. So, like always, we for you, those of you that are new listeners, we always start with a quiz on past American presidents. Yeah. yeah. Presidential trivia. Yes. So this week's quiz is which president has a Japanese slang word named after him that means to vomit? <laughs> that is a bizarre one. Right? Yeah. Do you have any guesses? I mean, I, if I want to say him, you don't ever let me guess. Well, I want to hear what you think. Like I... Like I always say, I really need to look at a list of presidents. Okay. <laughs> because I don't even have a guess. We're going to get, we should get a poster for, like, in our recording studio, by that we mean our closet, of just, like, all of the presidents, so then you can just point to one and guess. That one? That one. <laughs> all right, I'm going to get on Amazon so look <laughs> Okay. And I will give everybody the answer at the end of this episode. Just like I told you guys last week, since last week's was kind of a heavy episode, I have a fun one. A little bit so, lighter. Yeah. Uh. Oh, I guess we could uh, thank you for the shout-out and the shares. Oh, to Speller Street Films and the documentary Wilmington on Fire. Yeah. So that was the documentary that we got most of our information from last week, and they gave us a whole bunch of shout-outs. So we really appreciate that, and to anybody that hasn't watched that documentary, you should definitely go check it out. It's amazing. Yeah, phenomenal. Okay. And it sounds like, you know, every day as they're, they're kind of bringing to light that event, it, it, there's more information. Yeah, from what, I, from, from what I could tell, they're actually coming out with a sequel oh, to yeah. the documentary. Because, because they found because out so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, a, it's crazy how uh, history gets shared. Uh, uh, you know, people more people come forward with information that wasn't previously known or published really you know yeah that's like uh you know some of the true crime podcasts like your right. sister and montana murder mysteries they they'll post uh or they'll record an episode and, and they'll have people actually come forward with information on a lot of these cold cases yeah it is kind of crazy you know how some history is just being held on to by a select few people oh, yeah. and if they don't share it how easily it could also just disappear yep. without anybody else knowing yeah. All right, this week's episode, we're going to start all the way back at World War II. It's not way back. It is for this story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> towards the end of World War II, Nazi rocket scientists led by SS Major Wernher von Braun. Did we already talk about him? Yes, we've already we've talked about Wernher von Braun before. The, the one hill. So. He is a rocket scientist that, after the end of the uh, at the end of World War II, the U.S. hired him to help us with our space race. Yeah. I believe if you want to learn more about him and a 
his space race and also how his involvement he, with the space race. His space, yeah, the space race and also his involvement in America's plan to nuke the moon. Go listen to episode five, Moon Nukes. It's yeah, a great one. <laughs> All right, so but this story, he's still working for the Nazis. He's leading a whole bunch of rocket scientists. Near the end of World War II, he decides to switch his team's focus from space travel to personal rocket packs. The proposed rocket pack would allow for German infantry soldiers to quickly move across battlefields while avoiding barbed wire and minefields. The proposed rocket pack was dubbed the Himmelstürmer, or Sky Stormer, which... Cool name. Stormtrooper. Sky Stormer. <laughs> yeah. And would use two low-powered rockets, one strapped to the soldier's chest and another ro- rocket strapped onto his back. When it became obvious that the advancing Russian army wasn't going to be stopped, the Nazis' rocket research lab was destroyed, along with all evidence of the rocket pack. Aww. And then... They were so close. Yep. And then, you know, the Nazis were defeated... Bernhard came to America, worked on our space program, then worked for Disney. All of that. Yeah. <laughs> Became a really a, a, a true American uh, success story. <laughs> From Nazi SS to the happiest place on Earth. Yes. <laughs> While working for the U.S. government, Von Braun helped a civilian radar technician named Thomas Moore receive a U.S. Army grant worth $25,000 to build a rocket pack in 1952. Moore called his rocket pack the Jet Vest, which not as cool as the Sky Stormer. Yeah. But <laughs> unfortunately, the money for the grant ran out before Moore could complete his project. In 1958, Harry Burdett Jr. and Alex Bohr were hired by the U.S. Army for Project Grasshopper, where they were to develop a rocket pack for infantrymen that would let them jump at great distances yeah. and run at high speeds. So it would Why turn are the literally... Germans so good at naming their rocket pack? We go to... Why are we so bad at naming yeah, ours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The army's like, oh, yeah, Germans are like, Sky Stormer, and we're like, Grasshopper. Yeah. <laughs> so Burdett's and Bohr's jetpack used bottle nitrogen and then rockets for thrust and got the pilot to be able to jump up to 25 feet in the air and run up to 30 miles per hour. Wow. Can you imagine? <laughs> I don't know how you can run up to 30 miles per hour. Like, that probably it, propels forward. Yeah, well, if you just, like, yeah, you're not running, yeah. right? Yeah. Because if you, like, trip, then, like... Just tumbling. <laughs> yeah, your legs are all tangled up. It's just a real hot mess. <laughs> yeah. I just think back to when you say that, I think of uh, Wally. Where he's got the can and he's using it to like move himself in space. Oh you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So they presented their jetpack to the army at Fort Bragg, but their funding dried up shortly after as well. While they had been working on Project Grasshopper, an engineer for the Bell Aircraft Company, later named Bell Aerosystems and Bell Aerospace, was named Wendell Moore, not related to Thomas Moore, and he was also working on strapping miniature rockets to a pilot. Wendell Moore called his device the Small Rocket Lift Device, or SRLD. Ah, yes, because the military loves acronyms. They do. (laughs) His design involved gas being forced through downward-facing exhaust tubes. While inside of a large hangar, Moore tested his invention with him as the pilot on December 17, 1957, the 54th anniversary of the Wright Brothers' first flight. 
Moore was tethered to the ground by his colleagues and hovered about four inches from the ground. Moore was very excited and continued to make adjustments to his device. Nice. In 1959, Moore was able to test his device again and got about 15 feet off the ground this time. The Army heard about his work and gave him $150,000 to design a rocket pack for the Army in 1960. Take our money! Take yeah. our money! <laughs> continued. want jet packs! Yeah. We want jet packs! <laughs> Moore continued to make adjustments and renamed his invention the Rocket Belt, which... Can we just not call it like a jetpack? Like yeah. that's way cooler than rocket belt yeah. or grasshopper or whatever. Yeah. Oh, grasshopper's starting to grow. <laughs> the new design had three tanks. The two side tanks contained hydrogen peroxide, and the middle tank contained nitrogen. For flight to start, a valve is opened, and the nitrogen is released into the hydrogen peroxide tanks, which forces the hydrogen peroxide to go over a silver mesh, which creates a reaction that causes a high pressure of steam. The steam shot out of the rocket nozzles at such a high velocity that would create enough thrust to lift the pilot off the ground. The first flight took place on December 29, 1960, with Wendell Moore as the pilot. The flight was pretty rough and only lasted a couple seconds, but it was successful. More continued. R- rough house, though. Like, he was kind of like, whoa, uh, whoa. Like, he, yeah, yeah, he didn't really have control over it. <laughs> it's not like he, like, went flying into the side of a building <laughs> no, or something. No, like, no, 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 no. Didn't want to mention that small detail. Well, they were like, yeah, you could fly, but it wasn't pretty. Uh-huh. And so more, more rough. Con- yeah, rough. R- it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so more continues to improve on the jetpack. In February of 1961, Moore was piloting the 20th test flight when the belt snagged on a safety tether. The tether snapped, and Moore fell more than 8 feet out of the air onto the concrete floor of the airport hangar. Which 8 feet is like, you're going to survive, but that's a long fall. Yeah, that's painful. He fractured his knee very badly and couldn't fly the jetpack anymore. Can we we talk about the fact that, like, they didn't put, like, any padding down, like... Yeah, that he was literally just in an just in like, a hangar. Oh, the, the tethers will the tethers will keep him. Like, or could we like try doing this like on grass? At least something yeah, that's yeah. a little we'll bit softer. Put down some, put down some like bounce, like, like a mat. Yeah, yeah. Like a gymnastic or wrestling mat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor guys fall. Yeah. Harold Hal Graham was then selected as the next jetpack pilot. His only qualification was that he volunteered. <laughs> Like, they literally sent out a memo that was like, does anybody want to fly? And he was like, I will. And they're like, you're it. (laughs) I think because... What happened to all the other Well, we we think about it and we're like, that sounds really cool. But this was actually a super sketchy device that if you messed up, you could die. Oh, yeah. And you're dealing with chemical reactions. Yeah, you're literally strapping rockets to your body. It's not safe. (laughs) After Graham had mastered the rocket belt, The team felt confident to unveil the jetpack to the public. On June 8, 1961, Army officials and reporters gathered at Fort Eustis, Virginia, to watch Graham pilot the rocket belt. Graham flew to about 15 feet off the ground and then came back down. The press was wowed, and headlines about the rocket belt were seen in newspapers all across the country. A week after the first public flight, Graham flew again, this time at the Pentagon, in front of about 3,000 Pentagon staff. And in October 1961, he flew in front of President John F. Kennedy at Fort Bragg. I just imagine at all these events, it's like a carnival. 
exhibit, you know, like yeah. a fair exhibit. Well, I think about 3,000... Come see the flying man! Well, I think 3,000 Pentagon staff, not, not everybody needed to be there to watch it. They were probably like, hey, there's a jetpack here. There's a jetpack let's go. outside. Let's go watch. What? Yeah. Let's go, let's go watch the jetpack guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody's just, yeah, yeah, nudging each other. Yeah. yeah, let's go. Everyone that saw it was awestruck and word spread quickly. The team created the B-Series rocket belt, which was lighter. While flying the new model at Cape Canaveral, Graham fell 22 feet and landed on his head. Uh-oh. Graham survived, but decided that he was done flying the rocket belt. <laughs> so I'm assuming he was wearing a helmet. Yeah, he was. Okay. Yeah, everybody that flies it is wearing a helmet and like a safety suit and everything, yeah. but yeah. still, 22 feet out of the air. Yeah. That's gotta hurt. That's quite the drop. Yeah. It's not the fall that gets you, it's the sudden stop. Aha! Uh-huh. After. <laughs> <laughs> After Graham quit, four new pilots were hired. The new pilots were either experienced pilots or technicians that had been working on the belt. Yeah, experienced pilots in what, though? Like... Not rocket belts. No, but, like, like planes. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, like... There's there's nobody that has experience... Right. <laughs> ...with rocket belts. But, either way, they're... Everybody that's been hired as a pilot is experienced in some way or the other. Yeah. Probably the technicians know how to fly it better than the pilots, right? Because yeah, yeah, they yeah. weren't working on it. But anyways, the team started to look for a rocket belt pilot that had no flight experience or knowledge of the rocket belt whatsoever, <laughs> so that they could prove that any U.S. soldier could fly one of these things. That's when 19-year-old they Willie... Have... Did you say any U.S. Army soldier? Yeah. Should have hired a Marine, because if a Marine can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> then any of them Well, it's mostly, it's kind of crazy because it's mostly just the army that's looking at it. Right. Like, you think, I don't know, the maybe the Navy, yeah. like, yeah, isn't the Air Force starting to come into its own around mm-hmm. this time? Like, they are, yeah. yeah, they are interested in this. It's yeah. just the army. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's when 19-year-old William P. Souter was hired. Souter was Wendell Moore's neighbor. Like, he was just... He used to, cut, he used to cut Wendell Moore's grass. Oh and he, his family was friends with Wendell Moore. Souter was draft age at the time that the Vietnam War was getting going. And he was considering just signing up instead of getting drafted. And Wendell Moore was like, no, 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 no. I've got the job for you. I've got a job for you, so you don't have to go fight in Vietnam. Kind of be in the army, but... Yeah, exactly. So, since he was 19 and unexperienced, and, you know, a young man, he was the perfect demographic for, you know, any soldier that could be taught to fly this thing. Souter started flying the rocket belt while he was tethered to a cable pulley system so he couldn't crash too badly. So even if he fell to the ground, they'd have him, like, suspended so he couldn't actually hit the ground too hard. After four months of tethered training, he was finally able to complete his first untethered flight and shortly thereafter began to perform demonstrations for the public. Even though they had proven that an untrained young man could learn to fly the belt, the Army was now concerned that it was too expensive to use, and that the distances that a pilot could achieve with the small amount of fuel they could carry wasn't long enough to justify the cost. Because, like, you think you can only carry enough fuel that you can attach to your body, and it can't be too heavy, too. Mm-hmm. So you can't also can't have too much. So you really can't fly that far. You can fly for about max 15 to 20 seconds, mm-hmm. and then 
Okay, what's you're done. Then you're 20, out of fuel. What's that 15 to 20 second flight time advantage for over, for all the money that they're gonna yeah well, pay. well and also as a soldier you know you're worried about carrying food and ammo it's like right what do you you know that 15 to 20 second flight time is an exchange for a few hundred rounds or right yeah is it really a couple worth days it worth of food and water or... right so the army is no longer interested yeah so the rocket belt team focused on demonstrations for entertainment purposes instead yeah. Souter had his first public public flight at the 1964 California State Fair, where he buzzed the Sacramento Stadium and then landed on the stage. He came in too low over the orchestra pit and sent sheet music flying and the musicians running for their lives. <laughs> they continued to show the rocket belt at public events. <laughs> After that, I just imagine, oh, imagine like you know the strings and the the cl- the, the clanging. And the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah! yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. <sighs> so he then you know, performed at the New York World Fair and Disneyland in 1965. Souter and another pilot named Gordon Yeager flew to Paris to film the opening shot for the James Bond film Thunderball. Bill Souter got to be Sean Connery's stunt double for the scene where James Bond uses a rocket belt to fly from a chateau down to the ground. When the movie came out, it continued to increase the popularity of the rocket belt. Absolutely. Other pilots were hired, but Souter was the main pilot. He flew in demonstrations all over the world and flew at the first Super Bowl in 1967 between the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Go Pack Go! On May 29, 1969, Wendell Moore died unexpectedly from a heart attack at the age of 51. Without their chief engineer and mastermind, the team fell apart and the rocket belt was never flown again. Oh, and that was Suter's neighbor. Yeah. That got him into it. Yep. Oh, that was probably pretty rough down for him. I think so, because... He, he changed this kid's life. Can yeah. Can you imagine? Like, you just, like, you, you go from, like, mowing your neighbor's yard to... Can Stunt you, doubling and... For and Sean Connery, can you imagine yeah. how cool his life must have been? Right. And him right. just, like, trying to pick up girls. Yeah. He was like, just, yeah, yeah, did you see that new James Bond film? Yeah, that was me. Down the rocket. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just goes to show you, like, you never know who you're talking to, you know? Right, yeah. Souter decided to take a job with the New York Power Authority, assuming that he would never fly again. Souter didn't work there long, though, because he was quickly approached by a movie engineer named Nelson Tyler. Tyler had watched Souter fly the rocket belt at Disneyland and became obsessed with it. He sold a sports car so that he could fund the creation of his own rocket belt. Tyler asked Souter if he would help him test the Tyler rocket belt, and Souter agreed. I think Souter, like, it kind of sounded like he literally worked for the power authority for, like, a week. And then he went right back to yeah. flying a rocket belt. I'm never doing this again. Yeah. Honey, I got a new job. Yeah. <laughs> Souter flew the Tyler rocket belt publicly for the first time at the American Football Pro Bowl in 1971. They continued to work together for several years. They were then approached with the opportunity to have Souter fly the rocket belt at the 1984 Olympics. Souter flew a successful 17-second flight during the opening ceremonies in Los Angeles, and the 19,000 people there went wild. Souter landed on his landing platform, gave President Reagan a salute, and the crowd just started going nuts. And I want to show you the video of him flying at the Olympics. 
That's it. Oh my gosh. That's crazy, though. It's super short, but it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine if they could just figure out the fuel for that thing? Like, right? If to they... make it, you know, so you could go like a 20, 30 minute flight time. Like, yeah. That'd be phenomenal. Yeah. Crazy cool. Get on it, Army. <laughs> <laughs> so. You need to start re- reinvigorating the funding for Jetpack. Right? So Suter decides that he was now going to retire from rocket belt flying after the Olympics. Because he's like, that was the coolest thing. I can't top that. I'm done. And he was finally going to live a quiet life working for the New York Power Authority. So he still had his job back there. (laughs) After the Olympics, Nelson Tyler got 800 inquiries of people asking to buy the rocket belt. Tyler sold it to a theme park in Stockholm, Sweden. The theme park hired Suter's backup pilot named Kenny Gibson to fly the belt. Gibson was eventually able to buy the belt from the park and took it back to the United States with him. Gibson soon realized how expensive it was to fuel the belt. He started using scuba tank compressed air instead of compressed nitrogen cylinders, which would then cause the belt to lose power after about 10 seconds. He could also no longer get 90% hydrogen peroxide, so he used 88% that he bought from a company in Germany. During his first flight with the new fuel, Gibson was able to take off, but the belt stopped working when he was mid-flight, and Gibson fell, breaking both of his knees and the belt. Gibson sued the German company and won $250,000 in the settlement. Yeah, I don't know how, but he did. Yeah, third fault. So after he recovered from his knee injury, Gibson still needed to rebuild the belt and build a hydrogen peroxide distillery lab, so that he could get the 90% hydrogen peroxide he needed. Gibson decided to reach out to his buddy, Brad Barker. Gibson and Barker had met in 1975 when they both worked for the Houston Central National Bank. Barker was very mechanically inclined and was able to figure out how to repair the belt, but Barker knew he couldn't build the hydrogen peroxide lab on his own. So he decided to reach out to Larry Stanley, a wealthy entrepreneur that dabbled in everything from computers to aeronautics. Barker and Gibson could use Stanley's money and knowledge to get the distillery and their business up and going. Things were going well between the three men until Stanley borrowed Barker's Cessna in 1986. Stanley had borrowed the plane several times before, but this time Stanley disappeared with the plane. Uh Uh-oh. After not being able to find Stanley or his $180,000 plane, apparently it was a very expensive, expensive Cessna. Barker contacted the FBI. An agent called Barker back and said, your plane is probably at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico with a load of paw on it. Apparently, Stanley was a known drug smuggler that was very well known to several drug enforcement agencies across the world. Oh, wow. The good news, though, the plane was found in a hangar in Seattle, and it wasn't at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Recovered. The bad news was that it was there because Stanley had added a long-range fuel tank along with other modifications so that he could make trips to South America for drug trafficking. <laughs> so it was in the possession of some... Yes. And, there was, and there, was a, there was now an outstanding $30,000 bill that needed to be paid before the plane could be released back to Barker. Oh my gosh. Barker couldn't afford that and was forced to sell his Cessna, and Barker still had no idea where Stanley was. Four years later, in 1990, 
Barker was working on the rocket belt in Los Angeles while Gibson was in the Philippines to work as a stuntman in a movie. Barker got a call from Gibson's wife, Sherry. Sherry told Barker that Stanley had broken into Gibson's storage facility in Houston and had stolen some of the rocket belt equipment. Stanley told Sherry not to get anyone involved to try to get the equipment back or somebody would get hurt. Barker hopped on a plane for Houston and called up his friend, Rob Fisher, who had a black belt in karate. (laughs) Barker and Fisher headed out to Stanley's family's oil fields. So that's why Stanley had so much money. His family owned oil oil fields in Houston. So they headed out there with Sherry and some of Kenny Gibson's brothers. They were met by one of Stanley's employees, Bernie Robinson, who was a former Navy SEAL. So okay. now, so you have one guy that is a black belt in karate, and then the other guy on the other side is a former Navy SEAL. Huh. Barker said, "This is gonna get <laughs> Barker said that Robinson tried to swing at Fisher, and then Fisher used his karate moves to put him down. Then Gibson's brothers helped Fisher hold Robinson down while Barker grabbed a baseball bat and started bashing Robinson's legs in with it. Barker kept asking, "Where's Larry Stanley?" Robinson said, he isn't here, to which Barker replied, that's a shame. I'm very upset with Larry Stanley, and I'd like to hurt him some. All of a sudden, a car pulled up and out steps Larry Stanley that Barker hadn't seen for four years since he stole his Cessna. (laughs) Barker said, Stanley, I'm going to ask you one time where Kenny's equipment is, and if you don't tell me, you're not going to like what happens. Stanley took one look at Barker with a baseball bat and said, I'll take you there. (laughs) Stanley took Barker to where the equipment was being stored and gave it all back. Gibson returned from the Philippines and signed a contract to fly the rocket belt at the end of every performance of Michael Jackson's Bad Tour. Gibson would switch places with Michael Jackson at the end of the concert and fly up into the air to make everyone think that Michael Jackson was flying. Every flight at the concert paid Gibson $25,000 plus expenses. He made close to $1 million during oh the tour. Oh my god. Yeah. That's wild. So, he's finally doing it. He's finally making money. Uh, yeah. That's when he paid for the fuel. Yeah. Gibson then got a contract to fly at over 20 different events at Disney World. During the summer of 1990, Gibson and Barker began to have a falling out. Barker decided that he would just go out on his own and build his own rock belt. He needed some serious financial backing, though, so he called up Larry Stanley. Oh, gosh. Barker figured that Stanley still owed him for the plane. The two men eventually agreed to work together and founded the American Rocket Belt Corporation together in March of 1992. They built their own fuel lab and used pictures of Gibson's rocket belt to engineer their own. In October of 1994, their rocket belt, the RB2000, was finished and ready to be tested. All they needed now was a pilot. Bill Souter was living the quiet life <laughs> in Youngstown, New York. Working for the New York Power Authority. Working for the Power Authority and painting wildlife in his spare time. <laughs> the poor unsuspecting. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> I ain't gonna do it. Can't make me. <laughs> when Barker called him, he at first seemed disinterested in flying the rocket belt because he'd already retired like twice. But Barker eventually talked Suter into coming out of retirement to at least just look at the belt. When Suter saw the rocket belt, he fell in love. He didn't like people to other people touching it, and he polished it regularly. Yeah. Like, he hadn't even tried flying it yet. He's like, this is 
This is pretty. I like it. Suter asked Barker, do you mind if I name the rocket belt? Barker said, no, I'd be honored if you did. Suter then said, I'd like to call it Pretty Bird. Later, Barker said, I remember thinking, God, please don't call my rocket belt Pretty Bird. <laughs> but that's the name he gave it. <laughs> that's such a dumb name, Pretty but I bird. guess I already said you can Pretty name bird. it. <laughs> so, Suter tested out the Pretty Bird and had a very successful flight of 20 seconds. Oh my god. Suter returned to Youngstown with the intention of returning to Houston in November for more test flights. So, they talked him into coming out of retirement. He's Not their pilot test now. Test flight? Yeah. Right. However, things between Barker and Stanley started to go south again. Uh-oh. Stanley accused Barker of embezzling from the American Rocket Belt Corporation, and Barker accused Stanley of writing bad checks. Then they argued about who would fly the belt during public demonstrations. So I guess their plan was that they would just have Suter there to test it. And then one of them would would actually be the person that would fly it. Yeah. Stanley had purposefully lost weight so that he could fly it, but Barker felt that Stanley was still too fat. One afternoon, they got in an argument about who would get to fly it when Barker grabbed a 9mm pistol and pressed it to Stanley's forehead but then apologized for that about an hour later, and they continued to work together. A few days later, Barker and Stanley started fighting again, and this time it turned into a fist fight. After slamming each other against office furniture and through doors, Barker realized that he had a large gash on his hand that was gushing blood, so he went to the emergency room. When he returned from the hospital, he had heard that Stanley had been telling other employees that he was embezzling, So he grabbed a lead-filled, dead-blow hammer with his right hand while his left hand was in a sling and found Stanley and hit him on the back of the head. Another employee tried to separate the two, but Barker was able to get in a few more good swings and it hit Stanley's right hand so hard that Stanley's ring finger was severed at the knuckle. Barker hit Stanley about ten times before the cops showed up. Stanley refused medical attention and both Barker and Stanley were arrested and charged with assault. My God! While in jail, Stanley talk about a business (laughs) business gone bad. While in jail, Stanley decided that he did need medical attention, maybe because his finger was dangling by a piece of skin and he'd been hit in the head by a hammer. And he was taken to the hospital where he received several stitches and had his had his severed finger reattached. He was then taken back to the county jail. Both men filed civil suits against each other for rights to the rocket belt. But one day, Brad Barker just grabbed the belt, fuel, laboratory equipment, and a three fifty seven Winchester rifle and hid them from Larry Stanley. Barker got Suter to come help him test out the rocket belt and worked with Barker and Barker's new business partner, Joe Wright, to get the rocket belt tuned in. And... June of 1995, Suter flew the Pretty Bird at a party thrown for the Houston Rockets for winning the NBA we're, championship. We're, we're still calling it the we're Pretty Bird. We're still calling it the Pretty Bird. <laughs> the flight was a great success, but Suter decided that this was for once and for all his final flight, and if he was officially retired again after that. He's like Brett Favre of yeah. Rocket Belts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, or the Tom Brady. Or- <laughs> But at least Tom Brady's never been like, I'm retired. Yeah, like this, yeah, touche. Yeah. The Brett Favre. The He's Brett, Brett Favre. Favre. Yeah, He's yeah, Brett yeah, Favre yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barker and Wright. Yeah. 
Barker and Wright had a falling out after the demonstration, and that's when Stanley approached Wright. Stanley had seen all of the media coverage of Pretty Bird's flight and was still looking for the belt. Stanley offered money and to remove Wright from his lawsuit against Barker if Wright helped him find Pretty Bird. Wright agreed. Four days after the agreement between Wright and Stanley was made, Wright was found dead in his home. He had been beaten to death so badly that you couldn't tell who he was or if he was even a man or a woman. There had been no sign of forced entry, and it seemed that whoever killed Wright had been invited into his home. He had been struck by a blunt object, something similar to, say, a baseball bat, at least 14 times. The killer had then turned on the water in the bathtub and left it running, which flooded the crime scene and ruined most of the evidence. Despite the lack of evidence, Barker was arrested, but was then turned loose after three days of interrogation. The police couldn't connect him with the crime, and Barker had been in Fort Smith, Arkansas at the time of the murder. Stanley met with Wright's family and told them if the law couldn't punish Barker, he would do it himself. Joe Wright's sister came to Stanley's house to talk about her brother's murder. Stanley showed her his new forty caliber Desert Eagle pistol while they were sitting in his garden, and he accidentally pulled the trigger. The bullet flew by her head, narrowly missing her. Despite that, Stanley carried the gun wherever he went. In July of 1999, Stanley's civil suit against Barker for the rocket belt finally came to trial. Barker didn't show up, and the judge awarded Stanley the sole ownership of Pretty Bird. Now, all Stanley had to do was find it. Stanley offered a $10,000 reward for the recovery of Pretty Bird. At this time, Brad Barker was working on a new flying contraption that was shaped like a giant beer can. His idea was to sell it to beer companies as a promotional tool. Nice. Unfortunately, the funding for the giant flying beer can was pulled, <laughs> and Barker was out of a job. Yeah, unfortunately, Bar- they don't have funding like the yeah. U.S. military. Yeah. <laughs> and the bummer thing is that now that he doesn't have rights to the rocket belt, he can't use that to get money because yeah. as soon as it's shown in the public, Possible, yeah. yeah, they can gra- go and grab it. Yeah. So... Barker tried to break into the storage facility that stored the flying beer can, because he didn't have that either, but he was caught and landed in jail. When he got out on bail, Barker got a job offer from a Hollywood stuntman that would pay him $1,500 to do three days of stunt work in the Mojave Desert. Barker needed the money, so he headed to Los Angeles. Barker met with the stuntman, who then took Barker to his home where two other guys were staying. The stuntman told Barker that he would be working with the two men. They went inside and started chatting, until the stuntman pulled a gun on Barker. Barker was thrown onto the floor by one of the other men, and the stuntman asked, Where's the rocket belt? They interrogated Barker for hours, but Barker refused to give up the location of Pretty Bird. They then put a hood over his head and duct taped it on and put him in a small wooden box. I wonder where they're taking him. They then screwed the box shut. Barker stayed in the box, handcuffed, tied, and hooded for several days. Oh my God. The men continued to interrogate Barker about the rocket belt and threatened to hurt his son, but Barker said nothing. That's when Barker heard them drilling holes into the box. One man said, is that enough holes? Another replied, no, the more holes, the faster it'll sink. Barker was never thrown into the ocean. But after six days in the box, he was pulled out and told that a notary was coming and that he was going to sign some papers. 
Barker signed the papers that waived his claim to the rocket belt while a gun was pointed to his head. After signing the papers, Larry Stanley walked in. Larry Stanley ordered Barker back into the box until he revealed the location of Pretty Bird. I don't understand the point of the notary, by the way. First of all, Larry Stanley already has all legal rights to Pretty Bird. Second of all, I don't think even a notary signed paper with a gun to your head is legally legally binding. Yeah, it'd be under duress, but you'd have to show it. Yeah. Anyways. And you'd be like, oh, God was pointing my head. Yeah. Like, and then the notary would have to come and testify and be like, there was no guns there. Sure. I guess. But Larry Stanley already has the rights, so it's dumb. Yeah. There was no need for a notary. Yeah. That part's dumb. Anyways, the next night, Barker was able to pop his handcuffs loose little by little until he could get his hands out. He then untied his legs, took the hood off, and got the lid off of the box. He found a window that was jammed shut, but he eventually popped it open, ran through the backyard, and hopped the fence. Barker ran for two miles until he got to a gas station where he got a ride from a stranger to a nearby diner. He then called the FBI who had been looking for him. They appeared at the diner in minutes. He told them how he had been kidnapped and malnourished. He had lost 30 pounds during the whole, whole ordeal. Yeah, jeez. Eight- stuck in a box for days on Yeah. Him. The agents arrested the kidnappers and dropped Barker off at the hospital. Stanley was found guilty for kidnapping. He had been offered two plea deals, but he refused to take them because he said that he had done nothing wrong. The judge sentenced Stanley to life plus 10 years. Stanley finally realized that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison and then wrote a letter admitting his guilt. The DA decided to go back to the judge and ask for a lighter sentence on Stanley's behalf. What? Basically, he said, the DA said that he felt, you know, that life for the kidnap, a life sentence for the kidnapping was too harsh, that he was okay with it if Stanley didn't have any remorse, but now that he was showing it, that he wanted, he was okay with a lighter sentence. Oh my gosh. Anyways, the the judge, the judge lightened the sentence all the way to just eight years. Yeah. From life to eight years? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Then Bob uh, Brad Barker was back in jail a few years later for... Bob Barker? Uh, not Bob Barker. <laughs> Brad Barker. Come on now! <laughs> Brad Barker was back in jail a few, years, a few years later for still not bringing forth the rocket belt, and he was thrown into jail for contempt of court. After still not bringing it forward, the judge just let him go. Yeah. Like, you probably actually don't even know where it's at. Yeah, yeah. And the rocket belt has never been seen publicly since, and nobody knows where it's at to this day. (laughs) You go on a treasure hunt to find it. Yeah. Some people think that he gave it to his black belt karate friend yeah and his black belt karate friend separated it into like a bunch of different pieces and just and just hid them uh, all over but who knows scavenger hunt yeah he needs to write a book about it had the pieces and then you can like find all the pieces and assemble that'd be really cool yeah you've heard about that right yeah I've also heard well, about there's a uh, there's a treasure that's hidden somewhere in the Rockies. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, the flame. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have so much time on our hands. We should like Go use like for Flynn's treasure. we should just use like Google Earth and search for the treasure. Yeah, 
Like, at least try to, like, get a, like, pinpoint area. Well, you heard, uh, so, I think, I think it was nine. Uh, just, just recently, I think it was last week, there was two, there was one more death, which brought the total deaths in search of the hunt up to, I think it was nine. Jeez. What did they all die of? Um, so these two guys went out on snowmobiles in search of the hunt. Uh-huh. And apparently Flynn has said, you know, don't go looking in the wintertime, like, you're not going to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's silly. And these guys went out with just jeans and jackets and snowmobiles. And uh, one of them, I think, died of hypothermia because they got stuck in yeah. a bad situation. So That's a bummer. Yeah. I wonder if it's actually if somebody found it and they just didn't tell anybody. Because that'd be the smart thing to do. All right. But anyways, the sources for this story are The Rocket Belt Caper by Paul Brown which has even more crazy details than we added. So I highly recommend getting that book and reading it. It's a crazy story all about the rocket belt and starts all the way back from when the Nazis started to invent their own up to basically this, where we have no idea where it's at. And then the other article I used was the incredible, stupid, gruesome story of the first jetpack by Mac Faber. (laughs) Apparently, there's a movie called Pretty Bird that has Paul Giamatti in it, so I kind of want to watch that. We we should go see if we can find it on Netflix. We should. Amazon Prime. Yeah. So, do you want to know the answer to the quiz? Absolutely. Which president has Japanese slang word named after him that means vomit? It is George H.W. Bush. What? Yeah. So... (laughs) Never would have suspected, old W. Apparently, he was in Japan for a state dinner when he puked into the prime minister's lap. Like, all of a sudden, he just got sick and went, and then he puked, and then he passed out. And then, so, Japanese people say if you just, like, randomly puke, it's called bushusuro. (laughs) It's bush, U-S-U-R-U. Bushusuro? Nice. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so that's embarrassing. And maybe that's the reason he didn't get elected for a second term. Because there's a video of it. Oh, really? Yeah. You can, yeah, Google it. Just Google Bush puking, and you'll find the video of him puking into the Japanese prime minister's lap. Wow. So, good stuff. Yeah, like, why wouldn't you turn out not into the lap of somebody sitting next to you? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, either A, the other direction, or B, behind you, or C, in between your own legs. Yeah, or like, maybe, like... Like, I don't know what situation... Also, I, I, I think his Barbara was sitting next to him, and if you get sick, and we're at yeah, a, like... Yeah, your wife! Not, well, I'm, well, I'm just saying, if we're at a nice dinner, and it's between you puking on me, and you puking on the Prime Minister of Japan... Puke on me, like yeah, I'll I'll yeah, take yeah, I'll take the a, bullet. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I was like puke on your wife. Like, yeah, do it. she'll do understand. Anybody like, but him. Like, yeah, through sickness and health. Yeah, I'll I'll through t- sickness and in yeah, health. Yeah, I'll take it. I mean, you owe me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. We gotta uh, buy chickens or get another dog. Yeah, and... exactly. <laughs> that's my price. No, you know. If you guys like this podcast, please rate and subscribe us. Share us with your friends. Uh, You can listen to us wherever you get podcasts. You can also go to our website. Literally everywhere. Literally everywhere. You can go to our website 
americathebizarre.com and listen to our episodes there, along with finding some sweet merchandise and looking at show notes. And a sweet, sweet timeline that places all of the episodes in a chronological order for you, like me, might be chronologically challenged. You know what we should sell on our merch store? What? A poster with all the presidents on it. Absolutely. I'm putting that together. I'm going to make it. And then, but what we need to do is like, so I think you need to make it to like five rows of ten. Yeah. And then we'll leave blank spaces. So, so people can future... draw on their own. <laughs> so no, yeah. So but so but not draw on their own because it'd be weird. <laughs> so in the future we can like people can buy like the expansion pack. It's like get your forty sixth president sticker here. Five more presents. You think you're gonna do this for another twenty to forty years? Absolutely. <laughs> Man, I hope so. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll just also do, like, a calendar with all of the presidents, like, weird facts about them. Either way, it's a work in progress. We'll work on it. Keep your eye on the store. Yeah. And until next time, stay Stay weird, weird, America. America.